Please take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 5. The Lord our God is holy, holy, holy. Let the heavens declare the holy splendor of our God. Let all the earth proclaim the holiness of God. Proclaim the holiness of God to your own soul, to your heart, as you preach it and proclaim it in all the earth. Exodus chapter 5, and for this morning, I would invite you to follow along as I read verses 1 through 14. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Go back to your burdens. Pharaoh said, behold, the people of Israel are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men. They may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urged, saying, Complete your work, your daily tasks each day. As when there was straw and the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all the tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? This concludes the reading of God's word. May he bless it this morning. Would you please be seated? Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. I would remind you that if you have young children who are staying in the service, that there are note-taking sheets in the three racks in the back of the room. And if you'd like to go grab one, there is a, a piece of paper for children to take notes. And there are also some sermon notes located in those racks, if you don't yet have one. Let me pray and ask the Lord to direct us. As we study his word, Father God, we pray this morning that you would be honored in the way that we humble ourselves to the authority of scripture over your people. I pray, Father, that you would guide me, please, as a servant of the spirit to proclaim the truth of your word, the truth of its revelation of yourself as it points our attention, and our confidence ultimately to Christ. I pray this morning not just for this assembly, but I pray to you, Father, for all those brother preachers in our own community who are standing even at this moment faithfully endeavoring to teach your word, to edify your people, to make disciples here in our congregations. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless them greatly in their faithful effort. I pray, Father, for our confidence that the declaration of your word never returns without fruit, never returns without result. 
And in light of that promise, we are confident that in this moment of worshiping you and preaching and study, that you are pouring out a blessing of providence and of instruction of shepherding for your people in Christ's name. Amen. We are on here to Exodus chapter 5, and we're, we're making a shift into another major theme of Exodus. Exodus begins with, who is this guy named Moses, and what's going on when he's born? And then there is this conversation, it's a dialogue in the wilderness where Moses sees the bush with fire in its midst, but it's not being consumed, and he goes over toward it, and the Lord tells him, stay where you are, this is a holy place, and here's what I have to say to you. And Moses and God have this dialogue. This is what we call a theophany narrative, where God lays out his instruction for Moses and what he is to do. And Moses eventually agrees and makes his way into Egypt. We studied last time the strange events that transpired as Moses makes his way into Egypt. Today, we start the next major theme, and that is the interaction between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. And we see here Moses taking up the commission that he had received from the Lord in the wilderness to speak a correction to the most significant potentate on the planet. Moses is correcting Pharaoh for his slave labor force and saying, you should free these people so that they can leave here and go worship their God. What I want us to understand is that laboring in the curse this way requires supernatural intervention. There's nothing about the practical side of this story about a man named Moses who's a bit of a fugitive, at least if this Pharaoh had been the one that was in power when Pharaoh had killed the soldier. He's a bit of a fugitive, a bit of an outcast. He belongs by birth to the slave class, the low class, and he's going to go and tell Pharaoh to let his labor force go. That request, that instruction is going to require supernatural intervention. Now, that becomes really relevant for us. We say similarly, similarly, similarly difficult things to people. We say things like, demote yourself from your place of authority over your life, and instead surrender yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Come down off the throne of your own glory and surrender your will to Jesus Christ. Obey the command of God. And while I know it seems more reasonable, and maybe that's because of exposure, you've probably conveyed that message in no uncertain terms. And so you think, well, that, that's reasonable. Follow Jesus. Receive Christ and his work on your behalf. And that seems, re but I want you to understand that it requires supernatural intervention. The, the title I've given for this sermon is Laboring in the Curse. Laboring in the Curse. In Exodus 5, this encounter between Moses and Pharaoh begins. And we're going to see here in these 14 verses that there, there are three keys to this encounter, the demand spoken prophetically by Moses and Aaron, saying on behalf of God, let my people go. Could I, could, maybe you found yourself in this situation. Reciting to other people the word of God can sometimes feel awkward, like communion. When I read from 1 Corinthians 11, and I say, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I have to 
be very clear that I am not speaking for myself. That would be, that would be a room-clearing statement, appropriately. I am reciting to you what Jesus said. And Moses gets to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And then we're going to see the next element is Pharaoh's resistance. Not only does Pharaoh reject the command, but he has a contra response to the command. And then we'll see lastly, Pharaoh's own stubbornness. Making it clear that nothing short of supernatural intervention was going to accomplish obedience. We should be careful as we study this because we're going we're gonna to read the narrative of a conversation between a guy named Moses and a guy whose title was Pharaoh. And we should be careful that we don't allow ourselves to even accidentally presume that this is the conflict. It's not at all. In fact, it's not the conflict between Israel and Egypt. It's not a conflict between God and Pharaoh. It's not. This is a conflict moment between the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and all of the gods of Egypt. Because see, Pharaoh is just a representative of the gods of Egypt. He is just a regent of the gods of Egypt. And so here is Yahweh, the covenant king, which is why we picked that title for our study. The covenant king revealing himself as king over all kings, as lord over all lords, God over all, small g, gods. So in light of that, it's practical for us to see the correlation between Moses' prophetic warning and our own prophetic message. Moses here, and this is how I intend to unpack these 14 verses in a sermon, these three things. Moses relays the promise of grace to an unbeliever. That unbeliever's response will test the faith of the messenger. Ultimately, the unbeliever's response and the ensuing difficulty becomes increasing evidence that these people are strangers and pilgrims in a foreign and hostile place. Those are the three. Moses speaks the promise of grace The unbeliever who he spoke to rejects the message and what ensues becomes evident. It becomes evidence that they are strangers and foreigners living in a hostile place. Now, as I think about that narrative, that story, that revelation, I find it really practical in the way that it should Equip and protect us as messengers, like Moses was a messenger. And so let me get into that first point. Moses conveys the message of grace to an unbeliever. And I hope that you can see how it is gracious. We, we read it in chapter 4. In chapter 4, Moses arrives at the elders of Israel and he says, God has been near to you in your suffering. God has taken interest in your need and he sent me to tell you that he is going to meet the need that is gracious promise Moses then comes to tell Pharaoh about the grace of God God will deliver his people that's our first point the grace of God's promise shared with an unbeliever Forgive me, I think maybe in your notes the verses there are incorrect. That should be one through four. It might seem odd that Moses and Aaron even get an audience with Pharaoh, but just for a minute, understand ancient legal practice, 
ancient government order meant that you could just show up and the ruler was often the judge. We know this is true from Israel's history also. The kings would hear the grievances of the people. Sometimes the people would come and they would have a grievance about the king. They would say, well, king, we're glad that you've given us audience. We're actually here to express our concern about you. And that's what Moses and Aaron do. They come to talk to Pharaoh and they say, our grievance is with you. Here's how the conversation begins. Moses and Aaron said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. This is the first actual use in all of the Bible of this prophetic message formula, thus says the Lord. In chapter 4, the Lord had instructed Moses to say it that way. This prophetic instruction formula. Moses is just a guy relaying a message. Thus says the Lord. In this instance, Moses says, the Lord, Yahweh, is the God of Israel. This is added to explain who Yahweh was. It's probable that Pharaoh is totally unfamiliar with the title Yahweh. I don't, we shouldn't assume that because the Hebrew people have been living in the land that they have been evangelizing. I don't think that would be accurate. The Hebrew people themselves needed to be taught about God when Moses and Aaron arrived at the elders of the people. So Yahweh says, you got to let the Hebrew people go. And Pharaoh says, what king of what people is this Yahweh? No, no, no. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Oh, you're talking about a deity. Moses uses the message, thus says the Lord, regularly in his conversation with Pharaoh. But do you know that thus says the Lord is not recorded anywhere else in the Pentateuch outside of Exodus? So here Moses is very plainly conveying the word of the Lord. God instructs that his people be freed. Would you hear this, church? This is really, really important to me and to you. God explains why. Now, he's already said in chapter 4 that he is compassionate, that he cares about their plight, but here he explains why does God deliver people from bondage? that they may go and worship him. Interesting to me, two things. One is that it is very clear that God delivers people from slavery for worshiping. Interesting to me also here is that humanity hasn't changed much. Those people who order things culturally are very uncomfortable with a group of people bent on worshiping something outside of their culture. It is very unsettling to cultural leaders to have churches truly zealous about the worship of God. It seems threatening. I heard a preacher say once, and I believe I've shared it with you, that when a church gathers and joins its heart and its voices in praising a king that is otherworldly, it is similar to them to the sound of a battering ram thumping against the gate of their city. That's vivid and true. And Pharaoh was uncomfortable with the suggestion that the people would go and engage themselves in monotheistic adoration of a God who was strange to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord? The theme of Pharaoh not knowing Yahweh 
is reoccurring through Exodus, but it, it progresses. He doesn't truly know the name. Yahweh. What? He really doesn't know the name. Now that's going to grow. He is going to know the name. Oh, yes, Moses, you have told me about God. I'm familiar. But I don't truly know him. And then it's going to progress all the way to Pharaoh knowing the name. Pharaoh knowing the power, but not knowing the consequence for defying his command is certain death. And Pharaoh will learn that eventually, the hard way. There are two understandings of Pharaoh saying, who is the Lord? Well, there's one, which is plain here in the text. Who who is Yahweh? I'm going to need a definition with that term. That's one. But the other one is Pharaoh, seeing himself high and lifted up and being given a mandate by a foreign deity and literally saying, I don't care much what Yahweh says. That is also true here in his response. What makes you think that I would care? He goes on to say, I do not know the Lord. Who is the Lord? Moses and Aaron had received their first refusal of many. But God had told them it was going to be that way. Then they reply back to Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and the sword. Now, most of that is verbatim from chapter 4. This is what we heard God tell Moses to say. Moses and Aaron add that last part, and I don't think they've done anything wrong. I think they're saying, you need to understand, we are really serious. If we defy God's direct command, we expect pestilence and even the sword. And after all, that's sort of effective argument, I think, for Pharaoh. Your slave labor force... If you don't let them go, we'll die and fall ill. What good will that be? I just want to remind you before moving away from that verse. There is not in this narrative a suggestion that the command to let the people go was an extended weekend. When he says, let us go three days, everyone in the conversation understood We are separating ourselves from here, never to return. So so please don't misunderstand. We talked about that earlier when God first spoke it to Moses. Let the people go three days so they can return to this mountain and worship me. No one misunderstood. That was a call to the exodus that we know in the Bible. But the king of Egypt says to them, Moses and Aaron... Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burden. It's possible that the king meant to suggest that he had got word that the people had basically gone on a labor strike. Maybe they just weren't doing as much work Maybe the people were not showing up to work at all. It's possible that the people had removed themselves from work and gathered together for prayer about this particular meeting. The people have been informed that the God of Israel cares for them. And this had created among the people a worship. And so their worship was probably keeping them from doing their civic duty as Pharaoh would see it. I wonder how true that is of us now. Where too much supposed interest in God disrupts our place in a very busy culture. And so it's unwelcome. I wonder. I wonder how much that is the perception of culture. Your infatuation with worship is interfering with the status quo of our culture. Get back to the busyness. And so we're constantly pressured 
into more busyness. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book titled Crazy Busy. I would commend it to you. It is a good word of caution about a tension between Christian worship and cultural busyness. The response that Pharaoh gave Moses and Aaron is not belief, but in fact, anger. God's messenger speaks a message of grace. God cares for his people and has commanded that they be delivered from this bondage. And Pharaoh becomes angry. I remember when I was a boy, we moved into a new home. It was the day we were moving in, we were unpacking. My dad was a pastor of a church in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, a little city called Ingadine, Michigan. Some of you know it. I don't know how. We moved in, and I had snuck away from the work and met the neighbor boy. The neighbor boy was with his dad that day at work. His dad was the bar owner. The bar was next to the church, and we were on the sidewalk. I must have been about first grade when I found out that his dad owned the bar. I knew immediately he needed to be saved. And so I shared with him that if he continued in his path of participating in that line of work, God would condemn him. And if he was not saved, he would spend eternity in hell. And that little boy did not believe, but became angry and went and told his dad. And that was the first interaction between our families. (laughs) Moses doesn't find an accommodating response. He finds anger. And I just want to say before I move away from this first point how often that might be your experience. You have sat down with a family member numerous times and you have told them about the promise of God's grace. And they did not believe, but they got angry. And this text is important for us in that experience. Because this text keeps reminding us supernatural intervention is required. Um, I wonder, though, as I do move away from the point, how many of you here hear the command of God and respond with disagreement? Leave what you're engaged in and go into worship. Go into adoration of something new, strange, foreign. And I wonder how many of you have replied to that with agreement, or how many of you have become angry at that suggestion. So I just wonder, as you hear about the grace of God that would deliver sinners from bondage, I wonder why you might be angry at that message. If that's you today. Church, we speak this message. We send funds to people who will go to nations where almost no one receives that message. 140 years of church history, IBC, just over. Millions and millions of dollars sent to global missions where people are proclaiming the grace of God and getting a response of animosity, not belief. 
I want this text to embolden us to persevere in that. There's a text in Corinthians that says, as we go, we smell like Christ. Smell. Smell is a powerful sense. Smell is the most powerful trigger of nostalgia. Do you know that? Of all the senses, smell triggers nostalgia more than anything else. And Corinthians says, as we go, we smell like Christ. What does that smell like? Depends on who you pass. Because 1 Corinthians also says, you pass some people, and what they smell is death. Oh, that smells terrible. You pass other people, and they say, that smells like life. Why? Why is the sense of smell so different? Supernatural intervention. So church, I just want to encourage you, as you speak about the grace of God, and in turn you hear people get angry, that's not uncommon, and it's not outside of God's providence. Moses speaks the message of grace to an unbeliever, and his response is to be angry, and that leads us to our second point, verses 5 through 9. Faith is tested by the response of the unbeliever. Pharaoh's language in verse 5 describes Egypt's paranoia. We've already seen this. That, that's how the book opens. That's how this second part of the Pentateuch starts. The people are concerned because there's so many Hebrews, and so we'll kill the baby boys. Oh, okay, the midwives won't kill the baby boys. All right, well, we'll, um, we'll put them into such intense labor that we'll work them to death. And then verse 6, here is how Pharaoh responds in his paranoia about the number of the people. The same day Pharaoh commanded that no longer would the people be given straw to make bricks the way they had been in the past. It's predictable. The people are too many. Let's weed them out. If work had been a good way of keeping Israel quiet and obedient for so long, more work seems reasonable that it will keep the people obedient and quiet. Pharaoh shows his contempt for the instruction he heard from God through Moses by saying, no, I won't. In fact, I'll do this. I'll make it worse. And he removes the, the filling agent, the the binding agent from the brick making. Now it will just be brick material. No filler, no binder. The message goes to the taskmasters. By the way, these are Egyptian. And the taskmasters tell the foreman, these are Hebrew. This is the way it's going to be. Same quota, same amount of bricks produced, no straw. You're not going to get any straw from us. So look, if you were to look down to verse 12, you'd find what the people have to do is they have to go find a substitute. They go find stubble. Um, just to say real quickly, straw is something that you might harvest. You might take a, a sickle and you might harvest the straw. And at the bottom, the part where the sickle doesn't touch the ground, there will be a short piece. It's, it's really uh, not good for anything. It's the stubble. And they would have to go and pick the stubble, which would come out of the ground in that arid climate. It would come out of the ground, and they would use that. But they'd have to go get it themselves. And they would bring that stubble back and mix it in with their mortar and make bricks. And the consequence for the extra time they had to spend and the reduced amount of filler is that they were beaten for not producing the same amount of product. Here's why Pharaoh enforces this new edict. He says, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. This will be the consequence for them saying they want to. Be in conflict with our culture 
and make sacrifice to their God. He hadn't forgotten the divine name. He hadn't forgotten it. He uses it later, twice. But he omits it here because he has no regard for Yahweh. He sees him simply as an imaginary deity who, he says later, is lying to them. This is, this is common view of the unbeliever. God's words are lies. They're keeping you from conforming to expectations and standards of the world that you live in, from enjoying life in your own terms. <laughs> that is the lie of the garden. God is keeping a good thing from you. God's restrictive. Look at all the things you would have to miss, right? And so Pharaoh here caricatures the instruction by saying, you just want to go worship. Well, what about life in Egypt? How does this test their faith? They're sharing grace. And Pharaoh's mad. And retaliating. I remember the way I felt as a boy. For all the mistakes that I had made in sharing the need for Christ with my neighbor friend. I remember his dad coming out and yelling at me. And me going back where my parents were unpacking boxes. And I remember crying as a little boy. Thought I had done something right. That's debatable. And, and feeling frustrated. Like our family just moved, you know, hours away to share Christ with the people in this little tiny town. And on day one, I tried and failed. And I wonder how many of you in a more mature illustration would say, I have tried and failed and it seems to be a test of faith. Exodus chapter 5, verse 22, just look down a little bit. We're not going to study this today, but I want to point your attention to it. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil in this people, or to this people? Why did you ever send me since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name? He has done evil to the people. You have not delivered the people at all. All this time, I have been speaking the message of your grace. And the people aren't being delivered from the bondage of their sin. The people aren't being delivered from the slavery of sinning. Why have you sent me to do this? And you very well may have experienced that same, that same thought. Why have you sent me to share with my siblings or parents or neighbors you haven't saved the people at all. And your faith might be tested like that. And I want to remind you again that the title of the sermon is Laboring in the Curse. And the emphasis that I'm sharing with you pastorally is all of our conveying or speaking the message of God's grace requires supernatural intervention. So let's go on to the third part because it doesn't just come with hey, I don't like the message and I'm opposed to it. It comes with this really startling reminder that these people are strangers and foreigners living in a hostile place. So, verse 10, the taskmasters and foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I'm not going to give you straw. Go and get your own straw for yourself, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble and straw. The Israelites had believed in the Lord. They had gathered to pray for this conversation. And what came out of it was not belief, was not answered 
prayer, but rather hardship. Just feeling more like outcasts in Egypt. This relatively detailed account of the increased workload and the suffering that it created makes for us a principled point. God's people should not assume that carrying out his commands will increase our comfort. Of course, Moses had been forewarned that Pharaoh was not going to believe. But the severity, the weight of the response was shocking. It's one thing for God to say, okay, Moses, you're going to go and tell them, and they're not going to believe. It's another thing for them to experience what Pharaoh's unbelief felt like. And again, I want to equip us in this moment, in this room, with this text. And so I'd invite you to John 15. Would you mind turning to John 15? Verse 18. Um, would anyone mind saying, if you have a, a paragraph heading in your translation of the Bible, in your version, would you mind telling me what the heading is above verse 18? Hatred of the world? Okay. So, so this becomes a New Testament instruction for those of us who have likely experienced things similar to the resistance of the message that Moses experienced and the people experienced. So here, in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. By the way, That is not an instruction from Jesus for us to figure out a way to change it. That is an explanation of Jesus about the relationship between the godless and gods. And I I don't exactly understand why there is such an attempt to eliminate that explanation from Scripture. I'm going to say more about that in a minute, and hopefully I'll say it appropriately. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The fact that the Israelites, under the new rules, simply couldn't meet the brick quota is not surprising. Pharaoh had made the task virtually impossible. Pharaoh had made the task virtually impossible. Impossible task. Okay, so let me close by having a pastoral church conversation about the way that we steward our commission, the way that we operate as ambassadors of God's message, and the way that we respond when the message is hated. We can see in our lifetime that there has been a sort of experiment among the church to try to figure out a way to balance. To balance the the realities that in one hand Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt. Let your light shine and be the savory element. 
so that people will see your good works and glorify your Father. I shared that verse with you, I believe it was last week. So that's, that's one reality. Like, yes, we should be a people in a way that others see us and experience and interact with us and bring glory to God. And then the other side. There are some people you will walk by who will say, because you smell like Jesus, you smell like death. And Jesus says, the same Jesus who says, let your light so shine that people will see your good works and glorify your Father. The same Jesus who says that says, don't be surprised when they hate your very existence. Your your very participation in a gathering like this one is an offense to them. So we've seen in our lifetime the church try to figure out a way to balance that. And so maybe some of you are familiar with uh, like a church philosophy called like the seeker sensible or the seeker sensitive movements. Like how can we make the church be something that people really like? And in some cases, people applied a lot of wisdom to that. In other cases, people took the things that were most startling about the church and chose to eliminate those things. So they tried, tried to do something just for our text this morning. They tried to do something like go and tell Pharaoh, okay, our God has said, you know, let, let the workforce go. What we're asking for is them to be unionized and to have a 40-hour work week. You know, that, that's what I, in my opinion, in my cynical opinion, that's what some of the, the seeker-sensitive approach to church philosophy tried to do. Like, okay, God didn't really say that he was angry with you as a sinner, but, you know, I mean, don't you like God? <laughs> so that's another caricature. But then we've also seen sometimes the church do things uh, that have been helpful. And I even read a, a particular book. The author wrote a book called The Seeker Sensible Church. So that was, that was his way of saying, hey, there are some things we can do that will be helpful. And I think that's helpful to me. The balance of being a faithful messenger but not being able to control how your message is received. Really, not being able to control how your message is received. God the Spirit must produce in us a testimony where our activity in the world is as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. God the Spirit must supernaturally intervene for our messaging to be recognized as quote-unquote successful. We're going to continue to unpack this narrative. This is not the final word between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses is going to keep saying the same thing. And we're going to see supernatural intervention. And ultimately, we are going to see what this narrative is about. Yahweh reigning over all other gods. That's what this is about. That's what your commission to speak the grace of God is about. It's not about you being more witty than your neighbor. I'll make a better case than you can make, and you'll have to become a Christian. It is about supernatural intervention. God sends Moses to go on what seems like an impossible task and says, I'm going to be with you. A word which, if you you recall, was God saying, I'm going to prove that you're doing what I said to do. And then there becomes this kind of significant symbolism of that in his staff. And then Jesus says to us, all the authority is mine. 
This world that I spoke into existence, I'm in charge of it. So go make disciples of every people group on the planet. And I'm with you always. And I would just finish by saying with Paul and Corinthians, because the resurrection to everlasting life is certain, don't grow weary in well-doing. Your laboring is not in vain. Moses wasn't a failure because Pharaoh wasn't convinced. Moses doesn't fail until the end of the Exodus when he doesn't believe God gets angry and hits the rock. Results happen. But our call is to not grow weary and well-doing. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. This narrative, I hope, helps the church. Joyful, confident perseverance. I hope. Let's pray. Father, uh, your word is it's sweet. It's like the taste of honey. It is salve. Some of us, Lord Father, have been uh, wounded by a, a bitter or an angry response to sharing your grace. And Lord, here's your word, and this narrative is unfolding. This is account of one humble servant speaking your message. And as the message continues to be spoken without apology, without addition, you are going to show us your intervention. You are going to produce the fruit in your field of your labor. And I pray that your church will be equipped by this revelation of who our God is and what it means that you are with us always to the end of the age. Be honored, Father, as your word has produced in us fruit and faithfulness and obedience to this end in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.